This is the Ripple Effect with your girl K-Dot, where we're discussing NBA and NFL and everything in between. What's going on, everybody? Yes, you just stepped into the Ripple Effect with your girl K-Dot on the mic, giving you everything that's been going on in the NBA playoffs. It's like I keep saying, the drama of the NBA is the best, you know? The best drama series ever. And occasionally they play basketball, you know? That's the way I like to think of it. I forgot who actually originally said that, but... Anywho, lots to discuss, right? Did you guys see, first off, the Houston series? I mean, just from game to game to game, all the way to a game seven, it's like I said before, nobody called this. CP3, still one of the greatest. I don't care if he's going home. Unbelievable. And for the record, I think that it is best that everybody kind of calms down on the James Harden doesn't play defense because he's been known to show up as of late making defensive stops even when he's having a terrible offensive night and he actually owned it. I'm not going to tell you exactly what he said, but it was pretty explicit and he said right after the post game, he, he knows it wasn't his night scoring. But he didn't give up. He still was a team guy and he ultimately made the biggest play and which is why they're going to be carrying on to play the Lakers. We'll get into that. Big news. The Nets just found a head coach. A lot of controversy about it. Some people see that there's other candidates out there better suited for the job. You know, but there's a lot of there's a lot of either hungry, you know, assistant coaches out there. We know, we know we got guys like uh, Sam Cassell. You know, even Jock, you know, he was hoping to assume the the head coaching position after what he had done his success after Askins had left. But Steve Nash, man, I know a lot of people think of him, if you remember him playing, if you ever got to see him play, live, not on ESPN Classic, you know that he he was a floor general in his own right. He's a Hall of Famer, point guard. You most remember him probably with the Suns. But he's apparently had this not only aspiration to be a head coach in the NBA, but he also wanted to coach the Nets in particular. From what I've read, he's had a relationship with Kyrie Irving, so I'm sure that they've already went over this. You know, so that's that was smart. You know, I mean, NBA is all about relationships and building those relationships with, you know, different organizations, different different players, especially like a Kyrie Irving. You know, I've heard him and Kevin Durant as well, you know, having some talks and such. Because 
if you're from the generation that I am of basketball, where, where you're kind of like in the middle, you're not Generation X, but you're not necessarily a millennial either. You're more like an Xennial, as coined from the Times magazine. Listen, or the Times newspaper, excuse me. <laughs> but anyway, um, if you fit in the middle there, where I, I, I do, um, then you'll see where it's a little difficult when it comes to understanding why you would hire someone like Steve Nash, no coaching experience. Um, you saw the Warriors do it with Steve Kerr. And after the firing of Mark Jackson, and we'll get into a little bit of why he was fired, even though that this was like 2014. It's okay because it's actually relevant. But you will see that it makes sense in the sense of the way you coach millennials nowadays, right? You have to be relatable. Now, don't get me wrong, like I, there's still the few coaches, like you know, the, your Greg Popovich, he has his system, he has his way of thinking, but his way of thinking is still progressive. You know, he has a, he has a female assistant coach in Becky Hammond. You know, he, his thinking is still forward thinking, so he's still able to relate to the players while still keeping his old school, you know, I'm not just going to start having my team chuck up a lot of threes because that's where the league is going. He still has his own foundation, his own concept, and it seems to be timeless. You know, these guys still seem to be in the conversation, you know, in the West. And they're not a team that you necessarily sleep on in the regular season, even when there's no stars really to speak of, you know, outside of DeRozan, really. You know, but when you look at the league, there's nobody, you know, really tuning in, like, because there's like a real star on there. There's not much intrigue there. But you can always say that the intrigue might more so be Greg Popovich just because of how he coaches, how he keeps his team relevant. They still have a decent season. So like I said, it's, it's still the very few. But nowadays, you even see it in other sports. You, see, you saw it happen in baseball with Girardi, why they started to, decided to get rid of him, right? And we already know his credentials. But they said he had that inability to relate to millennials, which I found interesting. Even just a couple of years ago, that's when I started reading up. And there's actually books out there on how to coach millennials. You know, crazy, right? I know. I, I divulge in these type of things, you know? And I, you know, sometimes you just read things and you just sit on it. You let it, you let it mull over. You see how the years play out, and you start to see a trend. You know, it's like, wow, this really is a thing, you know? And like I was saying with the Yankees, and then they decide to hire Aaron Boone. It's like no coaching experience, very relatable with players, you know? Because, I mean, he was just a player not too long ago. You know, so you, you can kind of see where this is going. So for me personally, looking at the Nets situation in general, 
I mean, they decided to keep, you know, Jock on because I guess they still felt like they needed somebody else to actually run everything, to manage everything, like a head coach would, which is like injuries, because you know, Kevin, Dan- Kevin Durant and Kyrie, superstars, bar none, but at the end of the day, they're very injury prone. So, would someone like a Mark Jackson, you know, like one of these hard-nosed, you know, um, the generation before them, kind of with that way of thinking, that play-through injury type of thinking, you know, like how would that come across? You know, I'm not saying it, it could not work because at the end of the day, you kind of will never know until you actually, you know, try it. But I don't know. For me personally, just looking at the way that team is constructed, understanding the personalities, I, don't, I didn't feel that that would work. It made, it made sense to kind of come with somebody that's new, fresh, personable, able to relate, and able to diffuse situations and not necessarily letting them blow up. Um, Steve Nash, I feel, has that personality. He's not only just, you know, someone who's played in the league, he's very respected throughout the league. You know, from what I'm hearing right now, he was just announced as the head coach and he's already talking about his role in social justice and how he plans on speaking out. You know, so he's already thinking about next season. You know, he's already thinking about what he plans on doing when really inside the bubble, that was kind of what the NBA has manifest into. I mean, they've always spoken out, but, you know, with the names on the jersey, on the court, the commercials, you know, that's what the bubble was like. But here you have a brand new head coach already telling you where he stands and what he plans on doing from from jump. You you gotta be a little impressed by that, or at least say, okay, this this guy's already gonna be on the same page because you already know how Kyrie feels. You know, because he wasn't with playing in the bubble, but if you have that coach that is already making, you know, that proclamation, so to speak, to say, listen, this is what we're about. This is what Nets basketball. Yes, we're going to be competitive. Yes, we're going to be contending for a championship. But first off, before anything, social justice. You know, he puts that at the forefront. I thought that was smart move by the organization and Steve Nash himself. So with that being said, I obviously agree with it. Do I necessarily you know, want to see the Nets win all these championships and go off and do all these great things while I'm a Knicks fan? I mean, if I'm being biased, no. <laughs> Why? You know, but, but I'm trying to be objective, and if I'm looking at it, you know, through an objective lens, I, I would say this was a smart move by the Nets. They've, they've made really good moves, and you really have to manage these guys' minutes. When, it, when you have two superstars of that caliber, you know, drawing up, like, the best play isn't going to be, like, what, what makes you win the championship or not, I feel. Because you have two guys 
that can step up to that big moment have already proven it. They've already won chips on different teams and they both come up with big shots. You know, Kyrie wasn't the MVP when he did it because he was playing next to LeBron, but Kevin Durant was. But either way, you have two guys that could potentially be, you know, MVPs if they went on to go as far as winning a seven, you know, a, a series in, in the finals. So managing personalities, I feel like managing egos, managing tweets, like, you know, because these guys, Twitter fingers on a thousand. You know, they like to speak out a lot. You know, you got Kevin Durant with a burner phone. That's how, it, that's how far he goes with his tweeting and on social media. I don't even know where, they got, where these guys find their time, but those are the type of things you gotta manage, you know? And you have to understand that that's probably just what they're gonna do. You know, just creating, like if Steve Nash can do a good job in creating a culture, maybe taking, um, taking their mind off of social media, because you already know what millennials, you know, and I, I kind of fit into that category. I don't know, I'm a little hesitant about saying I completely fit. But I understand that when you're, when you're coaching a millennial or even just ha in, a, in your interaction with them, by telling them not to do something and just completely like setting rules and, and barriers, like that, that's not how you get it done. You gotta do it a whole nother way. You know, I think they'll eventually stop or at least not tweet or, you know, go on social media and access because there's just a different culture and they're just going to be so not only obsessed but just so invested in that culture where tweeting may become an afterthought. Or if it is tweeting, it's just more positive than, you know, getting bad at, you know, getting back at an unruly fan, you know, or somebody who just wants to troll, you know? So we'll, we'll see, it's, it's gonna be interesting. Everybody has their own, you know, ideas about this, about why they think it won't work, why they think it will. You know, there's probably some bias in some people's opinions, but that's okay. You know, that sports is fun, you know? You're gonna have all these different opinions out there and it's fun to talk about. But um, we also have to get into <laughs> Richard Jefferson noticing in the series how Giannis, like, man. I mean, I know that the Miami Heat are good. I mean, I haven't really talked about them as much as I should have given them their respect, especially Coach Spolstra. Man, genius. This guy's a genius. So they, they've locked him up. Like, and even when he scores a lot, they make his impact seem so little that half the time you don't even know he's out there on the floor. You know, they've, it's already, they're already up to zip. They look like they just completely handled this series. This series almost looks over. You know, and part to blame, I believe, is Butenhauser, but we'll get into that later. But back to the Richard Jefferson comment when he said he believes Giannis is a Pippin and that he still needs to find his Batman. Now, I don't know if he meant that like as a joke or if he was serious, but I took it as he was serious and I thought he was 
not necessarily right. I wouldn't say it was like a pip, it was like a Pippin, you know, Jordan situation, or it was like a Batman Robin situation. I kind of saw this more as like he needs he needs another guy on his level. You know, Giannis is about to be you know back to back MVP of the league. You know he's. And rightfully so. You know, he's durable. He's able, I mean, even though he is getting exposed at the moment, I, but we got to see the bounce back. You know, I know everybody wants to jump to these conclusions so quickly, but l- let's see how they bounce back. It's going to be tough for sure. But I just see it more as just imagine if Donovan Mitchell and Giannis was on the same team. I'm, I'm not breaking any news, but I'm just saying, like, you know, Giannis is going to be a free agent after this. You, you never know. But I'm just saying, is that really, if Giannis and Donovan Mitchell were on the same team, is that a Batman-Robin situation, Jordan-Pippen situation? No. It's just two guys and their own skill sets, you know, that, that will, I can see them playing very well together. You know, but Jefferson was just, I think what he was alluding to was he needs another guy, another guy that can play well, set him up with the ball, you know, and not have to constantly rely on Giannis. Because Miami already figured out that once they shut Giannis down, nobody else can play. Like Middleton's MIA in the playoffs. I don't understand. In, in the regular season, these guys are just rolling. It's almost like the, the playoffs in the bubble is exposing all the teams that pretty much just won these games just for home court advantage. So now that you don't have home court advantage, it's like you can't even, get, you can't even win a game. It's very interesting to see who really feeds off the crowd or really feeds off their environment. But at the end of the day, it's like, You guys have no traveling. You know, traveling, if anybody, I'm not even just talking about athletes. I can only imagine how tired they must be after playing a game and then have to shower, answer all these questions, you know, go with their agents, make all these decisions, then travel to another city. That sounds exhausting to me, but just regular travel is exhausting within itself. So the fact that you take that portion out of it, it's like, I. Yeah, you can say the season, you know, restarted. Okay, I'm not really in for excuses, really. I mean, and the Bucks, like, that's why I kind of just put that on Butenhauser. Like, what are, you, what are you doing to make these adjustments, to make sure Giannis gets more touches? Giannis is more aggressive, getting to the free throw line, at least. You know, like, I don't know. But this shouldn't be all on Giannis. You got to put some of it on Middleton, too, because last time I checked, he was an all-star. You know, but he's not getting it done. Giannis needs way more than Middleton. Middleton is starting to look like a role player out there. You know, and then there's everybody else. And you already know how I feel about Bledsoe. Like, that was was too expensive. They should have never made that trade. 
you know, at first it looked exciting, you know, but just understanding how he was acquired and what he did with the sons, that was a little suspect. Like, that was a little crazy. Like, he went a little MIA. They wasn't sure where he was. He was, like, on the beach or he was at the mall. It was just a little, like, okay. And then he was traded, and we expected him to be this point guard that he just never was. Solid, no doubt, but he's not an elite point guard by any stretch of anybody's imagination. The Bucks have to do a lot better. They have to make their own adjustments. Now, what we will talk about is those crazy calls that the refs decided to make. It's like you try to say one good thing about these refs, and then they do stuff like this. So first of all, how are you going to call that foul on Dragic? Like, how? Hands straight up, body was perfectly straight, well defended, didn't even jump, didn't sway, didn't sneeze, didn't cough. Ref felt the need to blow the whistle to say something. Why? Couldn't tell you. Made no sense. Terrible call. And even if you want to consider the circumstances in which that call was called, I mean, in the four, late in the fourth, you just don't, you don't do that. And then the refs just want to add insult to injury, right? Because apparently they're just calling everything. You have to be consistent because when you're not consistent and then, you know, when you start refing or officiating, rather, one way throughout the entire game and then switch it up the last couple minutes of the fourth, knowing when it matters the most, that's what gets people scratching their heads, wondering, like, what are you doing? Like, Dragic's call was completely unacceptable. And then later, you have the call with, um, on Butler. Like, I've, in, at the end of this game, I've, I've never seen this. I've never seen guys shoot free throws when the clock is literally at 0.0. .0. I've never seen it. Never seen it. So that it was interesting to me because I've been watching basketball for quite some time. And I've never seen that. And they were right to call it, but I don't know if it was right to call it knowing the clock was at zero. Like, does it really matter what's going on after the game is supposed to be over? That's where it's sketchy. Was it a foul on Giannis? Yes. <laughs> what are you doing touching the shooter while he's still in the air? Of course that's a foul. Of course it is. I don't care how little it was. If it was so little and insignificant, then why do it? Some people are like, oh, it was just a tap. It was, why do it? You didn't, it didn't need to happen. You didn't need, you didn't need to touch Butler. He was well guarded. Wesley Matthews had him. He guarded him as, as perfectly as you possibly could. That's like a turnaround jumper off one leg fading away out of bounds. Like, if he makes that, I'd rather that than him actually shooting the free throws when the clock is at zero, zero, point zero to ice the game. So ridiculous. So ridiculous on so many levels. So in case 
you know, just to be clear, because people were wondering my stance on this, was it a foul? Yes, if we're going by what a foul actually is. Yes, that was a foul. He hit him in the lower back while he was still in the air. And just coming down. You're not even supposed to be in their landing space. Even if you were in their landing space and he somehow step on, stepped on his, his foot or whatever. And we already know what kind of injury that can cause and what can happen. Because Kyle Culver literally did that to somebody. And I don't understand how a shooter can do that because it's like you would want that same respect and you should know that how that works. Anyway, so at the end of the day, it was a foul. But my problem is should it have counted because of where the clock was? That's just my take on that. All right, we have to get into this Houston series. Mainly just game seven. The fact that it came to game seven was crazy enough. Dort, I said he was gonna be the difference maker in this series, and apparently I was, I was pretty much right, but wasn't as right as I would like to have been. But anyway, um, Dort had 30 points, six rebounds, four assists. Pretty impactful for just a quote-unquote role player, right? What, what made it so crazy is that you can tell that they were relying more so on Dort to do a lot. And at times, it kind of felt like he wasn't ready for that moment. Game seven, here's the rock, it's on you. I know Chris Paul was kind of getting on him on the sidelines about, yo, when I pass it to you, man, shoot it. No hesitation. And there was a few times even after that, I saw him hesitate. So the fact that James Harden was able to get that block, you know, and we always get on him for his defense. So, I mean, maybe it just works. Maybe it's good. You just get on guys, you know, you bring attention to their weaknesses enough, then they actually, you know, do what you want them to do, right? Play defense. It, it worked. But Dort being so hesitant or so, you know, I mean, that, that was like a pump fake, you know, and go for the three, you know, because maybe the next guy would at least foul you and send you to the line. But anyway, you can tell he was hesitant when he was shooting the three. He shot the three. James Harden not only made the biggest block, I would say, or the biggest defensive play in his career, Dort caught the block, after he blocked it, he caught it, and then was thinking, okay, street ball, I'm going to throw it off him so it can go out of bounds, and then we're going to get the ball right here, kind of like a restart. But my man, James Harden, did some like Juilliard, you know, ballerina move, jumped out, jumped in the air, did like a little split, like a little half split, you know, he's got like the, the dad bot going on kind of. And the ball just went between his legs. <laughs> it went out. Like, I thought that was so cool. <laughs> like, if you was watching it, especially in live, real time, like, this was, this was nuts. This was just like, is, is this really happening? Is this really James Harden doing this? Having, like, the worst scoring night of his career in another Game 7 where he's known to not show up? But 
to me, this was better than him showing up for 50 some odd points. Because he's understanding the complete player, right? You gotta be, it's not just about scoring all the time. He, he knows, he, he should know this for a fact that you can put up 50 some odd points and still lose the game. You know, and, and what it, where does that get you? It doesn't matter, right? It's just like, come on. But if you were watching the game, even though it didn't really matter what James Harden did after Dort tried to throw the ball off of him because he had his foot out. So he was already out of bounds the minute he caught the ball. So when he caught the ball, it was already going to be Rocket's ball either way. But that block, though, that was something. I mean, just the, just the whole sequence. I mean, I really wish Chris Paul would have did it himself. I know that's not his game, but in the fourth, you have a, you're surrounded by a bunch of young guys. Man, you, you, gotta, you gotta be the one to put it on yourself. But I'm gonna break this down even further, right? Billy Donovan, coach of the year candidate, he lost to Nick Nurse, rightfully so, but even, even then I was like, mm, I don't know, Billy Donovan has done so much that I wouldn't have been mad if he got it. You know, he's done so much because this was supposed to be a rebuilding year with Chris Paul. Like, imagine that, a rebuilding year. And you're sitting here in a Game 7, game seven series, you know, with, with Harden and these boys. Like, and Russell Westbrook, and P.J. Tucker, you know, and Eddie House. Jeez. And this is what killed me the most. This is what I, we always put the blame on players or certain players for not showing up or whatever the case may be. Here I'm putting it on the coach. You have a young squad. You have some vets. By some, I mean like probably like two or three. Now, the ones in particular I'm referring to is Chris Paul and Gallinari. Gallinari, Gallinari is somewhere around 6'9". He's smart with the ball. He's tall enough. So I'm referring to this out-of-bounds play, right? The very last play where they decided to go with Alexander. I mean, he has a long name, but skinny young kid, has a very, very bright future, mainly because he's well coached. But him inbounding the ball, really? <laughs> Steve Adams running towards the ball, really? Why wouldn't your defensive, I mean, sorry, excuse me. That's how frustrating this is. Why wouldn't your game plan be Gallinari inbounding the ball? Steve Adams going towards the basket. Chris Paul, anywhere you want to put him, you only have one second. And point, you only have 1.1 seconds left. That's, that's it. That's all you have. 
You used up all your timeouts. This is all you have. Why would you even put this kid in, in, that, in that particular situation to make the decision that he ultimately made, to pass it to Steve Adams? Like, you can live with a guy like Gallinari throwing in the ball, giving it to Chris Paul, throwing up a shot, or even throwing it towards to Steve Adams because hopefully he's running towards the basket for some type of like alley-oop or some tap-in play. You know, and if the ball doesn't go in, you could live with that. It's like sometimes it just doesn't go your way. Understood. But I don't know. That, it just seems such amateur hour, you know, making that call for this kid to inbound the ball. And then worse, I mean, I think <laughs> the other worst thing you probably could have done was obviously inbound the ball and the ball gets turned over. You know, and then clock, that's it. Game over. But the next worst, worst option was definitely giving it to Steve Adams well beyond the three-point line. What was exactly was he supposed to do with that with 1.1 seconds left? He obviously panicked. He knew he didn't have much time left while he was on the, you know, while he had to inbound the ball. So he was probably, trying, he was probably getting nervous. He didn't, he didn't want to turn the ball over without even trying to get the ball in. You know, you just put him in some crazy circumstances right there. Have Gallinari, he's poised, he's big enough, he would have made the right play. But I really hope that that wasn't the game plan. You giving it to Steve Adams, and, and with respects to him, it's not about him, it's about his skill set and how much time you have left. You know, I wouldn't even recommend it of throwing it into George Hill, because some people are saying George Hill. No, because he has a slow windup when he tries to shoot. I don't mind him shooting on any other time, but we only have 1.1 seconds. We need somebody who understands and who can shoot fast and as accurately as possible. So me personally, it would have been Gallinari inbounding the ball, pass it to, <laughs> to Chris Paul, because he would have given us the best chance. That frustrated me to the max, because that was a simple coaching error. And I said, I, I did have Golden State taking it. I was almost right, almost. But at the end of the day, it's like, man, the coach, one of the finalists for coach of the year, like this, this is definitely on you. You know, and I said, the only reason why I can see them losing this series is because of inexperience. It's because they have a young team, and the details in the NBA playoffs matter the most. It's, it's attention to details, which would have been understanding the moment of how much time you had left, looking at your guys, understanding their skill sets, and then for the players to just execute. That's really that's all it boils down to is execution at the end of the day. Man. That was a tough one. But congrats to Houston. They did pay attention to the details and they're moving on against the Lakers. A lot of people think that uh, probably not a lot, but there's a few people out there that really think that this is going to be a sweep. 
I don't know. I think I, I get it. Lakers Nation is ready to erupt for a number of different reasons. I mean, when it comes to how I feel about you know Kobe Bryant and his legacy there and their tribute to Kobe this season, I'm with it. Like, if that's what they can do, 100% with it. But if I'm going to be realistic and just look at how these teams match up basketball-wise, not to mention, yes, the Rockets are significantly smaller, but the Lakers have a pattern of not being consistent. And the health of Anthony Davis is going to matter because he gets banged up pretty easily. His game is a lot of finesse at that. P.J. Tucker and the rest of them are going to be muscling him up. Maybe we might see a Tyson Chandler appearance. I think you're going to have to, though, at some point because you have McGee out there, you have Dwight out there, and then you have Anthony Davis. That's a lot of – you're talking about a lot of seven-footers, you know? So you already know what the what that dynamic can be. And if they try to have them all out on the floor for one – I always wanted to see that to see exactly how that would look. I think they did that like one or two times uh, Frank Vogel did that. And it's really out there with LeBron because then it's like LeBron could uh, just pick his poison, you know, what, who he wants to throw the alley up to. And if he has Davis on the perimeter, which he loves to be, you know, he likes shooting those threes, he spreads the floor, you know. But then you're, you know, a liability on the other side because you're going to have guys just running around them. But it's, it's going to be interesting. It's not going to be a sweep. I think we need to come back down to, to earth. I mean, if it is, that would really surprise me. That means that the Lakers are just picking, off, picking up right where they left off. They, they had a nice rest, you know, after the Blazers. You know, but the thing is, they're not going to be playing against a, a depleted team like the Blazers were and injured. You know, they're playing against a team that has had a long series, yes, but a tested series. When you're tested in a series, that builds confidence. It also builds a certain, certain amount of wisdom. So at the end of the day, you got to... Be mindful of that and see how that carries on to the next series. It's always fun to just kind of just go off the rails and think somebody's going to get swept just because on paper you see the talent level and where these guys should be playing. But we already know on paper doesn't matter. They still have to play. At the end of the day, these guys still have to play. So please keep that in mind before we go with all these crazy theories and that's why people end up changing their mind after game one, game two. Nah, just pick. If you honestly think they're going to get swept, cool. Pick it, but stick with it. Don't, don't wait till game one and they lose, and then you have, like, a different outlook on how you believe this series will go. But, man, um... It is funny how um, Pippen did get back at um, at Richard Jefferson. I know I was breaking down that that whole <laughs> that whole statement what he said earlier, 
but Pippin pretty much getting at Richard Jefferson, pretty much saying like, what what have you done? Like, what kind of player are you? Like, who resembles you at the moment? You know, just taking shots, like, because he was trying to say like, listen, I'm no, I'm not Giannis. I'm not a back-to-back, you know, MVP of the league, you know? And he isn't me, you know? And they're just throwing jabs right back at Richard Jefferson, you know? I mean, you know, you know that's coming. I feel like when you're an NBA analyst and you've played in the league, you know, and, you, and when you potentially, and when your words can be misconstrued as, you know, taking shots at other guys, especially like Scottie Pippen, he's, he's taking a lot of L's, especially after the last dance, you know? Michael Jordan definitely served him up a lot of L's when he put out the last dance because we already knew how good it was going to make MJ look. But, excuse me, I don't think we had any idea how bad it was going to make Pippen look. You know, I think that was kind of the takeaway of that series. But, man, that, <laughs> that is going to be interesting. <laughs> I love when I'm in the middle of of my podcast and it's like the drama doesn't stop in the NBA so LeBron is talking about uh he's just he said he's just minding his business but of course his name was brought up because he's preparing for Houston and he's saying he never been anybody but his you know his his self okay he's responding because Jay Williams as you know he's an NBA analyst he did play in the league but with the Bulls I believe until he was injured but he's on Get Up, he's on a few other shows on ESPN. And he said, just going back to the whole Giannis Pippen thing, because it's funny how one guy says one comment and it just, it goes crazy. So Jay Williams is like, quote, so LeBron was a Pippen with Dwayne Wade once. Nothing wrong with that until you get over the hump, end quote. So man, that was, that was quite interesting because just dissecting those little, you know, those little, little, little jabs. So I guess what Jay Williams is trying to say that in order for, for LeBron to have get over the hump in a sense, meaning in order for him to have obtained that championship, he had to assume the role of Pippen to LeBron's, I mean, excuse me, to Dwayne's Wade, Dwayne Wade's MJ in order to get a ring. So LeBron had to be the sidekick in order to get the ring with Dwayne, and he doesn't see a problem with that because that's ultimately what got him the championship. Whoa, that's interesting. You see, me personally, I didn't, when I saw that dynamic, I know everybody wanted a Batman and a Robin. I know Skip Bayless has made numerous comments about this, whether you have um, Dwayne Wade being the Batman or LeBron or some people saying 
Dwayne Wade actually needed to take a step back so that way LeBron could assume that Batman role in order for them to win. So everybody has different takes on what happened or who had to step back, who had to... I personally don't think it was that deep. I personally just believe it was you're good at what you're good at, I'm good at what I'm good at. Yes, Wade already had a ring and didn't need a LeBron to get his first ring. So I get the thinking, but you have, to, you have to understand where the game was going too because I do believe some people kind of missed the boat on understanding where the NBA is going in terms of roles. We can, we can obviously see the dynamic from, 90s, from the 90s, even from the 80s. You know, that there were certain roles, like maybe someone had the Batman role and the Robin role and that was okay because that's just how they got it done. But as I look at it more, just seeing the NBA as a whole, it's not really a Batman Robin situation. It's more of who has excelled in their position. You know, and then they're playing on side another guy who has extremely excelled in that position. Now I've obviously, Dwayne Wade has already excelled in his position because he's already gone to the highest of highs. He's gotten, you know, the MVP um, finals. You know, he's gotten the ring already. You know, LeBron maybe haven't, haven't gotten all those things yet, but he was the best in his position respectfully at that point in time. He just felt as though he needed to play with somebody who was best in their position. It just got a little crazy once they added Chris Bosh and everything else, and everything else just went sideways because I was, too, one of those people who weren't agreed why he went to Miami. But that's another conversation for a different day. We're just going to talk about Batman and Robin and how it gets crazy because I know it's fun. And a lot of guys, especially in the media, they get paid to kind of pick sides and to kind of take little jabs here and there because they know how much controversy it's going to cause. Now, me personally, if I'm LeBron, I probably wouldn't be paying too much attention to this because, you know, whether people think they're going to just sweep the Rockets is, you know, it's fine, but you still want to be mentally prepared. And like he always talks about, you need to be focused. You need to be in the zone and you need to be focused. Responding to Jay Williams' comments is not, it's not focused. It's, I'm assuming if a nobody said it, but... I mean, I wouldn't even give Jay Williams that respect. I wouldn't even, if, if that's what he thinks, that's what he thinks, man. He literally gets paid to think that way. You know what I mean? To do what he's doing. They pay him for his opinion, you know, or to take a side or, or to create some type of controversy just to see if you guys would pick up your heads and decide to start tweeting and start, you know, making a conversation out of this. It makes for more ratings because now I'm talking about it. You're talking about it. Somebody's tweeting about it. But you're about to play a whole nother series, you know? I don't know. It's fun for us, though. I mean, keep talking about it. I'm, I'm cool with it. But, guys, this has been my show. I appreciate you guys so much for listening. I, I see that there's more fans popping up in Ireland. I appreciate you guys so much. Canada as well. Guys, reach out to me. I told you my Instagram is the ripple effect underscore KDOT. You have Facebook, Katrina B. 
Let me know what you think. I appreciate all the DMs and stuff. It's actually getting kind of full right now, but I appreciate it. Keep them on coming. I'm going to do my best to reach out to everybody whenever I can. And for those who have been supporting me from day one, I appreciate you. And we'll see it on the next show. <laughs> all right? But guys, before I go, remember this. Register to vote. Get your friends to vote. Please make sure you vote. It's important. Okay? We're not playing. It's crunch time. Yes, yeah, some people probably like, oh, come on, we got like a whole month. And... No, no, you don't. You don't have like a whole two months. Don't think that way. Just register to vote. Make sure you vote. Take the day off. Okay? It's been your girl KDOT. Peace. This is the Ripple Effect with your girl KDOT, where we're discussing NBA and NFL and everything in between.